Well, good morning, and welcome back to our weekly Bible talk. Now, I should explain, we've uh, not had one of these for nearly a month. Uh, a lot's happened in that time. Uh, first, I got sick, which, you know, happens in a fallen world. Uh, then my family and I took a brief vacation to Tennessee. Uh, so obviously, you know, it's, it's, it's been a little bit. I think the last one of these was January 31st or something like that. But we're going to pick up where we left off like we always do and carry our uh, way through God's Word. Our habit here is just to keep chopping our way through. You take the next verse, next passage, talk about what it means, how it applies to our lives. And we're currently doing that with the book of 2 Peter. So open your Bibles to 2 Peter. Uh, to quickly remind you of the context, this book is written by the Apostle Peter, the same Peter that we uh, learned so much about from the Gospels, uh, you know, the, the Peter that uh, declared Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Peter that tried to prevent Jesus from going to the cross, the Peter that cut off the ear of the high priest's servant. Uh, that's the Peter that writes both First and Second Peter. Some of the big themes that we've seen already in 2 Peter include, uh, first, we have, we who believe on Jesus have the same type of faith as all the great saints from throughout church history. We have the same kind of faith as, uh, let's say, Moses or Abraham or Peter or Paul. It's not as if they're superheroes in a totally different category. Uh, sure, their faith might be stronger than ours. Sure, they might have grown more through different experiences and whatnot, uh, but they're not fundamentally different types of beings. Again, it's not like they're, you know, the incredible Hulk and we're just, you know, these little weaklings down here. What that means is that by the grace of God and with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can over time grow and mature and bear much fruit since, again, we're, we're, we have the same sort of faith as the great heroes of the faith. And the reason for that is because at the end of the day, the important thing is not so much our faith as it is the one that our faith is in, and certainly that's Jesus. We trust in the same Savior that Peter, Paul, John, all of these great heroes did, and they derived their strength, again, not from their faith, but from Jesus, the object of their faith. And that's why we fix our eyes on Jesus, and that's large part of how our faith grows. Another point we saw in 2 Peter chapter 1 is the way in which in Jesus we have absolutely everything we need. His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And that's really true. Uh, I challenge you to ask yourself, do I really believe that? The Bible clearly teaches this. I mean, if you doubt that, just, you know, read what 1 Peter uh, chapter, or pardon me, 2 Peter chapter 1 has to say, his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Do I really believe that? Uh, you know, it's easy to assent sometimes mentally to truths when deep down we don't actually believe them. D do I really have in Jesus everything I need for my struggle in marriage? Do I really have in Jesus everything I need to raise my crazy kids? Do I really have everything in Jesus to navigate these really unstable, wild political uh, times and the upcoming election, which I'm sure will be a lot of fun. Uh, do I really believe this, or is this one of those situations where I'm simply giving mental assent to something that deep down I don't believe in uh, my heart? I hope and pray that you actually do believe these things, um, because th that will change the way that you look at life. Uh, when you get all worked up over this and that, instead of just wringing your hands and fretting uh, and maybe complaining to your friends, uh, instead you'll turn to the Lord in prayer and to meditate on his word and to fellowship with his people if you really believe these things deep, deep down. So that was a second theme that we talked about, the way in which we really do have absolutely everything we need in Jesus, and therefore the application is to drive deeper and deeper uh, into our relationship with him. Then last time, if I remember correctly, we talked about the way in which we're to cultivate all these different virtues. Uh, he begins in verse 5, supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, and so forth, and he 
uh, numbers off a whole bunch of different virtues that are all vital, that are all, um, you know, in a way they're similar to other lists of godly virtues. You look at something like 1 Timothy 3, uh, Proverbs 31, uh, you know, there, uh, the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5. There are different lists of godly virtues that we're to cultivate, and this is another one of those lists. And I tried to argue that really, in one sense, faith in Jesus is sort of the, the, the hub out of which all of them spring. Uh, you know, that's where it begins. I, looked at, I look away from myself, and I look to Jesus, and I trust in him. But as I commune with him, grow in my relationship with him, that will manifest itself in different ways. In things like virtue, knowledge, self-control, so forth. And again, the call last time was to cultivate all of these. I don't remember if we really talked about it, but you wonder, how do I cultivate these virtues? You know, say I want to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. How do I practically do that? Well, the simple answer to that is two things, communion with God through Jesus, and second, communion with God's people. Uh, you, you commit yourself to both of those, and over time, these virtues, God's spirit, will bear them in your life. Communion with God, uh, things like prayerful meditation on scripture, uh, memorizing appropriate scripture passages, uh, reading relevant good Christian books, li listening to good quality sermons, not, you know, the TBN junk, but good quality Bible exposition sermons, uh, repenting of sin when the Spirit convicts me of it, being sensitive to the Spirit's work in my life. Uh, so there's that communion with God, but that's inseparable from communion with God's people. We are not lone, lone ranger Christians. And if you get off on one of these two tangents, think that I, uh, you know, it's just me and my Bible and I don't need the people of God, uh, you can pretty quickly become a heretic or an apostate because, you know, you get disconnected from his church. The, the other extreme happens as well. If you think, okay, I'm just going to go to church and like hang out with God's people and not really cultivate my relationship with God, what happens there is that church becomes kind of like a social club and you go just to like hang out with friends and whatnot, uh, but you really need them both together. Communion with God through his word, prayer, but also communion with his people and those uh, the Spirit will, over time, use to bear these virtues in your life. Now, having said all of that, we're going to pick up in verse 8, uh, see how far we can get. There are a couple of big points I want to make this morning, but before we dive into God's Word, let's pray together. Pray with me. Our God in heaven, thank you so much for your precious word, and thank you for, in particular, the book of 2 Peter. Thank you for its unique truths that it contributes to our understanding of knowing you, walking with you, glorifying you. Thank you for the way that it does so clearly stress that absolutely everything that we need is found in Jesus. Help us to believe that. Father, open our eyes now as we continue to look here at chapter 1. Give us illumination, conviction, guidance. Uh, help us to sense what you're saying to us through your word today. And as always, give us faith that we might be doers of your word, not hearers only. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. All right, let's pick up in verse 8. Like uh, I've been doing, I'll just read a verse or two, make some comments, and then we'll keep going that way. But verse for if these qualities are yours and increasing, he's clearly talking about the qualities that we just enumerated, uh, faith, virtue, so forth. If these qualities are yours and increasing, so not only do you have them, but are you growing in them? And that there is a reminder uh, that our Christian life really is designed to be a growing Christian life. It's not, you know, it's not like I'm content with the fruit I've got now and, you know, I never aspire to grow for the rest of my life. I know that there are some people that kind of fall into that category. Uh, they, they just sort of, they get sort of sinfully content with where they're at. Um, you know, they, they've been plagued by the same besetting sins for years, plagued by the same, you know, you know, anger or irresponsibility or whatever. Their marriage is still stuck in the same malaise as it's been in for years, and they don't really aspire to grow. 
um, I want to lovingly say that's not okay. That's actually sin. Now, of course, we're okay in Jesus. We rest in him. Our peace is in him. But at the same time, there ought to be this aspiration to continue to grow, to excel still more, to develop more and more fruit. You, you know, you go back to what Jesus talks about in the Gospels. We're not only to bear fruit, but to bear much fruit. And that much fruit comes as we abide in Christ, commune with him. Uh, so you want these virtues, but don't be content. Like, okay, check the box. I got a little bit of faith, and I got a little bit of self-control. And I got a you know, of, of course, it's you know, better than going the opposite direction and pursuing wickedness. But at the same time, we should be aspiring to grow still more. So you know, let's say, by the grace of God, you've developed a good deal of patience. Praise God for that. See how you can help others similarly grow in patience. Uh, but let's aspire to excel still more. If we're continuing to be sinners so long as we're in this world, it, you know, if all of us, even the best of us, are far from perfect, then there's still room to grow so long as we're uh, in this world. So how can I continue to grow and develop even more of these, even if I already have sort of evidences of them already? But anyway, if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, those are things no Christian wants to be, ineffective and unfruitful. Uh, you know, what are those? That, you know, I think we get what those are talking about, even if you don't know the Greek terms behind these words. Ineffective. Uh, you know, nobody's really affected by your ministry. Nobody's really paying attention. You know, you, you try and encourage somebody in the Lord and it just falls flat. You try and, you know, share the gospel with your coworker and they're just totally disinterested. Uh, that's ineffective and that's not what we want. Now, obviously we want to be careful of the error of pragmatism. I'm not at all arguing for pragmatism. What's pragmatism? It's this philosophy where I just kind of do what works best. Uh, no regard to the Bible, no regard to the character of God, the plan of God. I just do what works best. And in its extreme forms, that's why you get some of these sermons that are just off the wall crazy where it's just pastors kind of telling funny stories and jokes and you know there's virtually no bible at all no gospel at all uh, that's the extreme form of pragmatism and that's not what we want at all but at the same time there ought to be some sensitivity to uh you know does anybody think i'm gifted to do this or that uh you know when i teach the bible do, does everybody fall asleep and afterwards they're like you know i didn't understand a word of what you were talking about uh there ought to be some concern Two, uh, am I reaching people? Am I engaging people? Are they actually understanding better what God's word says? Um, because again, we don't want to be totally, we don't want to just be wasting people's time at the end of the day. And that is, by, by the way, a pointer to, I, I won't pursue this for the sake of time, uh, but if you are in a ministry and it just feels utterly ineffectual, utterly pointless, utterly fruitless, uh, maybe take that as a pointer that I should explore maybe a different ministry. Now, I'm not, you know, you know don't, conclude that after one effort you know say you know I, part of the reason i'm saying this is because i've preached an awful lot of sermons that i thought were absolutely abominable and that people slept through them and you know i could look around and see people using their phones and whatnot and i don't think they were reading the bible on their phones uh, so don't jump to this conclusion just based on one, two, ten bad experiences. But if consistently over time you're, you're totally not reaching people and people are kind of like, yeah, I don't think you cut out for this, uh, take that as a sort of cue that God has a different ministry in store for me to uh, perform. And, and you will, once you kind of find that ministry that God has gifted you for, you'll flourish in that a whole lot uh, better. Uh, but do kind of keep these things in mind, that you don't want to be ineffective, totally fruitless, 
But notice the connection that Peter is making here. They're connected to godliness. Uh, it's not like a fruitful ministry comes as I read like business books and I get like these little simple tips on you know how to how to make eye contact while I'm preaching and how to you know wave my hands in the air. Now some of that certainly can be helpful. I took a lot of preaching classes in college and seminary, and we did go over some of that. You know how to make a good point, and you know eye contact is better than just staring at your notes. Uh, some of that certainly is helpful, but at the end of the day, what really empowers is a fruitful ministry is godly character. Uh, and you can usually tell it. Uh, you, you know, I've been around people that within five minutes, you can tell they're godly. And, and, and you almost can't figure out why. You know, I don't know if it's the, the spirit in them and the spirit in me. We kind of, you know, are drawn together like a magnet, but you can kind of tell. And, and it, it's not easily, uh, you, you can't like easily tick off these boxes. They hold their hands this way. They hold their face this way. But you can just kind of tell this person knows the Lord. And that will come out in the way that you minister. So if you want and by ministry, don't think I'm only talking about teaching, preaching. It includes that, but this is everything. You know, working in the nursery. You know, if you, if you teach Sunday school to three or four-year-olds, sharing the gospel with your coworkers, uh, sweeping a floor. You know, maybe you had a great big church dinner and there's, you know, spaghetti and whatnot on the floor. Uh, you will do these ministries more fruitfully, more effectively, if uh, you've got godly character. Uh, you know, just think about it. This is really true for everything. As you grow in godliness, you will become... And I want to, again, be careful here because I'm, a, I'm, I'm very aware of the tendency toward pragmatism, and that's not, not at all what I'm talking about. But let's say my job is being a street sweeper. As I grow in godliness, I will inevitably become a better street sweeper. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, as I grow in godliness, I'll be concerned to show up on time. Uh, if I consistently consistently show up on time, will that make me a better street sweeper? Of course, much better than the guy that, like, you know, just doesn't care at all and sleeps in and shows up whenever he wants. Uh, you know, I won't get drunk on the job. Well, obviously, that's going to help me. Uh, I'll be honest when I mess up and make a mistake, and I'll accept the consequences for my mistakes. I'll try to be friendly to my coworkers. I'll try to be respectful to my boss. I'm not saying that if you know you grow in godliness, God's going to give you you know money is just going to start falling out of heaven. That you know I'm not talking about that kind of nonsense at all. But growth in godliness does have very practical implications, and one of those implications is that basically every area of your life will become more fruitful, including what we might consider secular work. So anyway, coming back to Second Peter, if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, again, not, none of us want that, so what's the call? Grow in godliness, but what's underneath that? Communion with God, communion with his people. That's the way in which you'll experience this abundant, fruitful life. In a way, it kind of reminds, I mean, th th this is what the entire Bible has been talking about. You know, you think of Psalm 1. Uh, Blessed is the man who meditates and delights in God's word day and night. He'll be like this fruitful tree planted by streams of water. You know, it's really talking about the same kind of thing. If I want this fruitful, abundant, rich life, uh, it comes through communion with God, communion with his people, and that will flesh itself out in a variety of ways. I'll be a more effective pastor, more effective uh, father, mother, butcher, baker, candlestick maker, whatever. Uh, but again, at the end of the day, it's, it's found in my relationship with God, which is why we're so happy that the first part of the chapter says that in Jesus, we've got absolutely everything we need. So again, this is a, another call to ask yourself, do I really believe these things? Do I really believe that what I need to become a better mother, father, son, brother, citizen, um, pastor, 
boxer, uh, street sweeper, whatever, is found in growing in my relationship with the Lord. If I believe that, then I'll really focus on that, and I'll prioritize time in his word, prioritize time in prayer, prioritize fellowship with his people. If I really don't believe that, uh, I'll neglect those and prioritize other things because I think that, the, that what I need is found in other things. So again, ask yourself, do we really believe what Peter is saying here? Anyway, coming back to our chapter, look at verse 9. For whoever lacks these qualities is so short-sighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Now, what is that talking about? That, I remember the first time I studied this. I studied 2 Peter a long time ago. I think I mentioned this in an earlier Bible talk, but 2 Peter was one of the very first books, maybe the first book I ever taught uh, comprehensively. And I remember coming across that verse and thinking, like, what in the world is that talking about? If somebody lacks these qualities, so it's, again, that's, you know, all the stuff we talk about, faith, virtue, so forth, He's short-sighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Is it possible for a believer to forget that he's saved? Uh, is it possible for a believer to forget that he's been forgiven by Jesus' blood? Having thought a good bit about this, I don't think that's really what it's talking about. The Bible does talk about forgetting, uh, often in the sense of like losing, losing it as the focus of what I'm looking at. You know, for example, it talks about God forgetting our sins. Now, does that mean like he totally forgets what we did and like it, like oh, I, I didn't know you did that? No, obviously God is omniscient, knows everything at all times. But what that means is that, the, you know, while the sin is certainly still in his, like, brain, obviously God doesn't have a brain, but it's still in there, it, it, he, it's not really, like, the focus of, his, uh, of our relationship with him. He, he doesn't keep it, like, at the forefront of our interaction. You know, so, again, our sins are forgiven in Jesus, meaning, in part, he forgets about them, meaning that, again, they're not the, the focus, even though God in his omniscience knows absolutely everything, and he's known everything from before the foundation of the world. So, also, I do think that Christians can get their focus off Jesus and onto other things. It's not that they, you know, it's not, let, let's imagine a person in this category, whoever lacks these qualities is short-sighted, that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Let's say there's a person in that category. I don't think if you went up to them and asked them, do you know Jesus? They're not going to say, who's that? Who's Jesus? I have no idea. That doesn't make any sense because clearly the person in this category has been cleansed from his former sins. He, he has been forgiven. He has been justified. He has been adopted by God. But again, what I think can happen is that you can so easily get your focus off Jesus. You can so easily get enamored by the things of this world. And I think this is why the New Testament is constantly calling us to fix our eyes on Jesus because there is this continual temptation to get your eyes on other things. You know, you think about what is it? Hebrews 12.1. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, uh, who for the joy that was set before him endured the uh, cross, despising its shame. Uh, you think of Colossians 3.1. If then you have been raised with Christ, set your mind on things which are above. There's this regular call to believers, to those who have been justified, have been cleansed, uh, to fight, to keep your focus on Jesus, because it's so easy to, again, get distracted. And we all do this. You want to know what the one of the greatest uh, tools that gets our eyes off Jesus today is? Uh, it, it's our smartphones. Now, I use a smartphone. Uh, you know, it, it's kind of impossible not to use one in our world today. You know, we're continually calling, texting people, using, uh, uh, getting directions to drive here and there. So it's, it's practically impossible not to use a phone. But again, it's so easy to get distracted from Jesus by our phone. You know, if the phone is the first thing you look at when you wake up in the morning, if the phone is, you know, what you're taking with you, and, you know, instead of, like, reading the Bible during your devotions, you're scrolling through your messages, or, you know, even worse, like, scrolling through YouTube or something like that, uh, you know, take that seriously, and, and realize that this tool that can be 
good and helpful is distracting me from Jesus. And maybe I need to put some boundaries into my life so it's not so dominating. Uh, now, maybe the phone isn't that for you, but it could be other things, you know, just the cares of this world and, you know, or politics or financial concerns or whatever. But there is this constant temptation for something to displace Jesus as our focus. Um, and when that happens, uh, we can sort of forget about him. He's not as prominent in our minds as he ought to be. And what's the consequence of that? I think the consequence, you go back to verse 8, is that we are ineffective and unfruitful. Uh, so again, all of this comes back to keeping our eyes and our minds focused on Jesus, communing with him that produces these godly virtues so that we have a fruitful life, a fruitful ministry. Uh, but again, if you're not pursuing these, you can kind of forget and Jesus fades into the background and he's not anywhere near as captivating and life-dominating as he used to be. Let's see here. Um, how, how much time we got? Let's see if we can cover a couple more verses. Verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Now, boom, there's a big verse with a lot packed in there. What is going on here? Well, let's first talk about the idea of calling and election. I'm actually going to be talking about this more uh, in Wednesday Night Bible Study this week. So if you want to learn more about calling and what the Bible teaches there, you might want to come out to Wednesday Night Bible Study. But Follow Peter's logic. If you've got these character traits, they'll persuade you of your calling and your election. If you lack these, you'll be sort of forgetful, and it won't be so clear in your mind. I think what Peter is talking about here is basically assurance of salvation. How do I know that I have been born again? Uh, for a lot of Christians, that is a huge struggle. It's interesting. I've been a pastor now for over 20 years, and for some people, assurance is really, really tough to come to. Uh, you know, they might struggle for years before they've got this uh, firm assurance. For other people, and I don't know why, but like they, they, they trust Jesus and they never really struggle with it again for the rest of their lives. You know, I don't know why we're like that personality-wise and whatnot, but, uh, you know, I've, I've experienced every different point on that spectrum there. Um, but what Peter's saying you want to know for sure you're called. You want to know for sure you're elect. Uh, be pursuing these qualities. And as you see the Spirit producing these qualities in your life, they'll serve to further persuade you that you've been called and elected. Now let's talk about these two terms, called and elected. What's that talking about? Well, the term called is used two different ways in the New Testament. There's the general call to everybody, but then there's the specific call only to those who believe. There's the external call that comes through sermons, tracts, books, the radio, YouTube, and basically that's uh, come to Jesus, trust in him, whosoever will uh, come to the waters, drink, and have life. That's the general call offered to everybody without exception. That's the call I issue from this pulpit every Sunday. Uh, hopefully that's the call you're sending out to your, uh, your kids and your coworkers and whatnot. Everybody, come to Jesus. But then the New Testament also talks about this inward call, this call of the Spirit in our hearts where he opens our eyes, opens our minds to trust in Jesus. This is what Jesus is talking about when he says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Uh, a lot of people heard Jesus with their ears, but they didn't hear him in their hearts. Uh, you know, the Pharisees heard Jesus teaching all the time, but they rejected him and finally killed him. Um, but people like the disciples, they heard Jesus inwardly. And that's that inward call, the Spirit drawing you to yourself and giving you faith to believe. So that's the first term, calling. The second word, election, uh, we've talked about this before, but this is the idea that God has chosen those who believe from before the foundation of the world. The Bible teaches this everywhere. You know, Ephesians chapter 1, uh, Romans 9, I mean, it's all over the place. The reason I believe is because God chose me to believe from before the foundation of the world. Now, is that mysterious? Of course. Um, but like I've said before, 
you know, welcome to the discussion of the God of the Bible. There's an awful lot about the God of the Bible that is mysterious that we cannot fully comprehend. But what we can't do is to deny or to contradict something that Scripture teaches. And clearly, Scripture teaches that those who believe were chosen to believe before the foundation of the world, not on the basis of any of their good works or foreseen faith or anything, but just according to God's good pleasure. God does whatever he pleases. God, Our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he wills. Um, and God, for his good, wise, loving purposes, chose those of us who believe from before the creation of the world. Now you think, you know, that's kind of weird. Well, it actually serves to strengthen your assurance enormously. If I've got this persuasion that God has set his love on me, then at the end of the day, my assurance is not based on me and my love for God, but God and his love for me. Does that follow? You know, at the end of the day, the deciding vote is not so much me, uh, because I, you know, I know I'm a weak, fallible person. I'm so fickle. You know, I get tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. You know, I, I'm, I'm kind of a shaky person. But if my assurance is based on the omnipotent, sovereign power of God, that can really serve to strengthen my assurance. And I can have the confidence that I've been called, that inward work of the Spirit, and elected, chosen by God to be one of his people, if these virtues are abounding in my life. Now, this is not all that the New Testament says about assurance. There actually is a lot that, you know, the Bible says a lot about assurance, and different people kind of fall in different categories. You know, some people lack assurance because they're not so sure the Bible's true. You know, if that's the case, you, you address it a different way. Some people don't have assurance because they got, uh, you know, some, some distorted understanding of the character of God. That, you know, their, their God is not, you know, is not fully in line with what the Bible teaches about the character of God. That's a different category. Uh, you know, some people, they, they believe the Bible's like true, but they're not so sure they actually, you know, it's kind of a confused, almost like a something almost approximating like multiple personality disorder. But they think the Bible's true, but they're not so sure they believe it. I've encountered a lot of people like that, believe it or not. So the Bible has a lot to say about assurance. Do be careful of not applying one sort of strategy to the wrong type of person. You know, if somebody is struggling with whether or not, uh, you know, I, let, let's use a, a simple example, whether or not uh, Jonah could actually stay alive in the fish for three days and three nights. That's different than the person who's dabbling in some unrepentant sin. And that's different from the person who, as far as you can tell, is a godly person, but you know, maybe they're, they're kind of OCD in their personality. And because they can't check every single box and cross every single T right, they don't think they're uh, converted. So do be careful of not applying the wrong strategy to the, the person struggling with assurance. But again, there is this category of people that because they fail to cultivate godly character, uh, they have strong doubts about their calling and their election. Uh, now, I can see that we're almost out of time. Maybe I'll pick up more on this topic next week. Um, I have personally come to really view assurance of salvation as like mega, mega important. Um, it's actually one of the joys of being an evangelical Christian, that I can know I am saved. I don't need to wait, uh, you know, until I stand before God on Judgment Day. Uh, you know, I don't need to continually fight back and forth, am I saved or not, you know, kind of plagued all my life long with doubt. Uh, additionally, if I've got this strong assurance of salvation, it actually frees me to worship God with joy. It frees me to serve others with confidence and boldness. I really think this is part of what it means. You know, how can I be ashamed? How can I not be ashamed of the gospel, basically? You know, Paul talks about I'm not ashamed of the gospel. If I want that, I don't think I can have that if I'm continually stuck in this slow of despond, not so sure I'm even born again. Uh, so I've come to see assurance as kind of a big deal and really one of the beauties and the glories of the Christian gospel. So I think we'll talk more about that next week. But again, follow Peter's logic. Develop these character traits. 
uh, they'll make you fruitful, they'll make you effectual. You lose sight of these, you'll lose sight of Jesus, and what will eventually happen is that you'll lose sight of your calling and your election. You'll lose your assurance of salvation. You won't be so sure that you're born again. So coming back to the beginning, let's cultivate these character traits by communion with God and communion with his people. I've said a lot here. Let me uh, wrap some of this up in prayer, and we'll be done. So pray with me. God, thank you for the joy of studying your word together. And again, we thank you for Second Peter. Please, Lord, help us to cultivate these godly virtues, uh, to pursue and, and maybe even identify ones where we're particularly falling short and particularly need to grow. Lord, we do pray that you'd help us to prioritize communion with you through Jesus and communion with your people. And we do pray that as that takes place, these virtues would abound in our lives. We do pray for any that might be listening to this today who have not yet been truly born again. We ask that you would call them to yourself, open their hearts, and give them eyes to see and ears to hear the gospel for the first time. Uh, Lord, thank you for this precious truth that we can know in this life uh, that we have been born again, that we can know even with our besetting sins and trials and challenges, uh, we can know that we are the children of God. Uh, for those of us who believe, give us a strong assurance of salvation. Bless now the remainder of our day. Help us to love those we interact with and gather us back here next week to study your word again. We pray this through Jesus our Lord. Amen. Thanks so much for tuning in. Have a great day.